this is just such a great story. The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And it's just so full of human realness and the way we are and the way we do things. Um, so let's look at this. So what can we learn from this story? Uh, start off with my first main point is God's purpose, my plan. Kind of the interesting thing in this, this scenario is that uh, they were very focused and clear about God's promise. And they were committed and, and on track to see that promise carried out in their life, right? Sarah wanted a child. Abram wanted a child. They, uh, they weren't rebelling against God by uh, trying to do something that was not part of God's purpose and plan. But uh, clearly, uh, Sarah believes God needs help. And uh, she, it says, starts off, says she, uh, they've been in the promised land now for 10 years. Uh, Sarah is unable to have a child. And the prospects for her really are looking quite slim. I mean, beyond slim. In, impossible, okay? Beyond impossible. It's just not going to happen. I mean, she's well beyond the age of childbearing already. They've given God 10 years to pull this off, and God has not done anything about it. Clearly, God's not cooperating. Ever felt that way? Uh, whatever God has in mind, it's clearly not to produce a child through Sarah. He's had his chance. And it ain't happening. And so uh, it's a real problem. And Sarah has pinpointed the whole problem very well. Okay, Sarah's got good theology on this point, And she says, God has prevented me from having a child. Okay? And so she's thinking through this theologically. It's a good thing to do. She's thinking through this biblically. She goes, God wants to have a child. And clearly God's had his chance. And he has prevented, he's blocked the way from, from this happening in my life. So, uh, there must be another way. There must be another means to accomplish God's promise without his help. Okay, Because he hasn't been helpful so far. In fact, he's been an obstacle. So we'll just come up with a plan that bypasses God. Okay, now That should start raising red flags in our, in our mind, right? Uh, we'll come up with a plan that doesn't require God's assistance. Okay? So we're going to fulfill God's promise. We're going to pursue what God wants us to do, but we're going to do it without God's help. We're going to just bypass God in this process. So she comes up with her own solution. A solution that does not require God's direct help. Okay? And that is, she says, you know, really, I'm obviously not qualified to do this, so all you need is a girl. Okay? We'll find a different girl. It will make her your wife, and then you can have a baby with her. And this was actually a common practice in the Middle East at that time. For wealthy families, if, you, if a woman was not able to have children, it was practiced often that you would have a surrogate child through a servant or a slave. And so this seems to make sense to, to Sarai. And so she suggests this to 
Abraham, look, why don't you sleep with Hagar? We'll make her your wife, and um, you can have a a child with her. And Abraham, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't want to examine his motives, but he's all too eager on this thing, okay? He's all too excited about this. He's going, oh, yeah, sleep with your servant for the promise. Yeah, yeah, right, sure. Whatever you say, Abram. And so he agrees, uh, very passively takes her advice and uh, consents. Uh, And interestingly enough, it works. There's all kinds of theological questions we don't have time to get into on this one. It works, okay? So here's the deal. Ten years, well, more than ten years. I mean, Sarah's 75 years old, many, many more years, but at least ten years since God's made the promise, they've tried to have a child, couldn't do it. Uh, Abraham sleeps with Hagar potentially one time, and she's pregnant, okay? And um, there's just all kinds of things that just seem wrong with this whole scenario. Um, and it works. And, and theologically, as Sarah said, God gives life, right? So obviously God must have blessed this plan because it worked. Uh, the problem was no babies. We need to make babies. They came up with the plan to make babies. Poof, they made babies. It's God's will, right? God has blessed them. Well, um, you know, as we look at this, just at every level, if you have any sense of whatever, there's just red flags all over the place, right? There ought to be, as you read this story, red flags all over the place. Go, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. This does not seem right, right? Something seems wrong with all this. Um, what is wrong with this plan? Well, uh, some people have argued right off the bat, well, this must be immoral. Uh, it would be hard to really make that case, though, given Abram's and, and Sarai's context. Now, of course, for us to do this, guys, be, be very clear, okay, for us to do this, it would be immoral, even if your wife suggests it, okay? It would be immoral because we have very clear written words and instructions from God that says, don't do this, all right? So for us, certainly, it would be immoral. But in Abram's day, he did not have any written code from God. Okay, there was no Old Testament. There was no law. There was not the Mosaic Code of Conduct. God had not prohibited or had said, don't do this. God never came to Abram and said, I'm going to give you a son. In fact, God is amazingly reluctant to give them information that would have been very helpful on this point. For example, he could have said, I'm going to give you a child through Sarai. God hasn't said that yet. Okay? He, hasn't, he said, you're going to have it from your own body. He has yet to say it's going to come through Sarai. So, um, and it was a common practice in their day to do this. Uh, it would be wrong to fault Abram and Sarai with the charge of, of doing something immoral. Okay? In their mind, Hagar became a legal, legitimate wife. Um, within the practice of that day. So it wasn't wrong, perhaps, on, on moral grounds, on, on ethical grounds, but the author is very clear in the way they can, he constructs this passage to let us know that it's not, it's not right. And he carefully chooses to use language that flashes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, listen to these words from Genesis chapter 3. So woman, when... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make unwise, she took it and ate it and gave some to her husband. Okay? Okay. 
Sarah does the same thing. She sees a plan. Uh, she says, it says literally, she took Hagar and gave him to Abram. Same exact language, same exact words. Uh, another parallel in Genesis 3.17, it says, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree. Okay? Literally, it could be translated because you've obeyed the voice of your wife. Okay? Uh, chapter 16, uh, it says that, that Abraham listened to or obeyed the voice of his wife. Same exact phrase. Okay? The author is clearly connecting this with the scene in the garden. And he's telling us that it is, in some sense, a fall. It's, it's language echoing the fall. There's something wrong with what's going on here. Well, what was wrong with it? What was, what was the real problem? As I said, I don't think it was necessarily that it was immoral. At least it would have been unfair to charge that of Abraham and Sarai. Uh, what was the real problem? Well, it was the same sin as the sin in the garden. Uh, the real sin in the garden was that Adam and Eve sought to fulfill God's purpose in their own way, right? Eve saw that the fruit would do what? It would make her like God. Now, did God want Adam and Eve to be like him? Well, absolutely. He created them in his image. It was God's purpose and design that we take on his character and likeness. But was this how God intended for them to become God-like? Well, absolutely not. Uh, likewise here, God's purpose for Abram and Sarah is very clear. What's God's purpose? Well, to bless them, to make them into a great nation, to let them inhabit the promised land. But what's wrong with their plan? Well, it's a plan that's being executed without God's help. Right? We always get ourselves in trouble when we seek to fulfill God's purpose and accomplish His goals right as they are, if we seek to do it in a way that eliminates God from the process. Okay, in other words, wanting God's plan, but not wanting God's help or God's guidance in the process always gets us in trouble. And that's exactly what Sarah does, Sarah does here. She has clearly in her mind God's plan, God's purpose, God's program, but she's decided that God's not going to cooperate on that, so she needs to do what? Take control, take charge, and come up with a solution on her own that doesn't require waiting on God, that doesn't require God's help or God's direction. And so uh, it's clear in this, as you look through the story, some things glaringly missing. Uh, they, there's, no, there's no word of them seeking God. Okay, Sarah comes to Abram with this plan. He doesn't say, you know, let's pray about this first. All right? Absent. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, now, did they pray? To, and this is this is interesting. Interesting side note on prayer: they did not pray beforehand seeking God's guidance. Okay, they didn't pray seeking God's direction and leading. If this was indeed God's God's plan, uh, would it have mattered then if they had prayed afterward? Okay, I can see. I can just picture this. Sarah, you know, she's just given Hagar to uh, her husband. And she goes in her little devotion times and prays, God, please bless our plan and give us a baby. Okay, is, is, is prayer going to be powerful and effective at that point? Well, maybe God answered the prayer, but is that really the design? Right? See, anytime we start praying 
for God to bless our plan, but we've never earnestly prayed to seek God's plan, we're always going to end up in trouble. So many times in my life, and so many times it's so easy to do this, to come up with our own idea and our own plan, and to fervently and diligently pray that God will bless my plan. Right? Uh, her plan was to make babies. She came up with a good plan. She prayed that God would make babies. It seems that it worked. But it didn't work because God was, was really in it. Well, He was in it, but not in the sense that Sarai uh, hoped for. Okay, so they didn't see God. They did not pray. Uh, it was not a plan birthed out of faith and trust. Okay? In fact, quite the opposite. Sarah is not saying, look, I have complete confidence in what God can do. What does she say? Well, God clearly is not helping us out here. So we've got to take matters into our own hands. We've got to take charge of the situation. Okay? There's nothing birthed out of it that is grounded in a solid confidence in what God is going to do. She's taking control of the situation because of what God has not done. All right? Those are all signs and marks of a plan that is not God's. Okay? And that is, in, in essence, sinful and rebellious. Right? That is contrary to God's ultimate purpose. Um, Really, it is in the end an attempt to fulfill God's will or His plan without God, without His leading or help, without Him. Right? And that's the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the sin or the fall, fault of Sarah and Abraham here. And it's a danger that we have all got to be very aware of. Okay? And here's the danger. The danger is living in the, the illusion that because you are doing God's work, God's behind you all the way. Okay? Okay, so if you would ask Sarah, are you doing God's work here? She would say, absolutely, God wants to have a kid. I'm doing God's work. But was she doing it God's way? Well, absolutely not. And we, we are at risk, especially if we are involved in professional ministry, if we feel a call to service, if we are interested and motivated to be carrying out God's purpose in the world. It's very easy to do that in a way that is my plan done my way apart from God. Uh, it's so easy to turn it into our own ill-advised schemes, right? And uh, it works like this, you know. We say, you know, all we need to do is make babies. And the reality is there's a lot of pressure from the world for results, isn't there, right? There's a lot of pressure within ourselves for results in ministry. You know, you got to write something in your newsletters, and people want babies, right? They want to know you're making babies. They want to know you have results, right? Uh, our own, maybe our own a sense of worth puts that pressure on us, right? Are you making babies? Where's the offspring? Where's the children? Where's the fruit of your labor? Are you making babies? Are you coming up with something, right? You've been here for two whole years now, you know, there should be babies. It only takes, you know, nine months. It's taking you two years. What's taking you so long, right? You feel this pressure, okay? You go back on home assignment, and you've got to go to these churches, and they all want to know, okay, we want slideshows and videos of the babies. Where are they, right? And so there's all this pressure, and it's really easy to say, okay, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to make babies, with or without God's help. I'm going to produce results, I'm going to come up with something that looks good on paper so that I can 
prove my existence. I can show that I'm a good Christian, that I'm doing the right things, and that everybody will be proud and impressed with me. Right? There's a lot of pressure for that. A lot of pressure. And it's so easy to get caught into this trap and this mindset that says we've got to perform, we've got to come up with results, or clearly God must not be in it. You know, it's interesting, when you look at this story, you look at the whole picture of what's going on with Abram's life. Uh, it took him 25 years to make a baby with Sarai, okay? less with Hagar. Okay? Which one, though, was God's plan? Which one was God's purpose? All right? The overnight result or the long-term baby? Right? Um, the reality is that... We need to evaluate our ministry and our life, the fruitfulness of our life, not by instant results. Okay? The question we should always be asking is, am I doing exactly what God has asked me to? You know, if, if Abram and Sarah had asked that question right then, is this specifically what God has called me to? Did God ask me to do this? Did God make clear to me that this was his plan. And I pray about this and seek God that this was indeed his way to go about this. Well, they both would have had to say, well, no, it was not God's leading, it was my own doing, right? That should be the first thing that we use to measure the fruitfulness of our life. And it doesn't matter if you're 10 or 90. We should be asking, am I daily seeking God's leading and am I hearing him speak to me clearly and am I doing exactly what he says? Now you might say, well, you know, God hadn't told them a whole lot. Well, you know, here's the deal. When God doesn't tell you anything, what should you do? Wait. Wait. Sit still. Okay? Do nothing. Pray some more, right? Uh, pray some more. Seek God some more. Because taking things into your own hands and taking charge, taking control is never God's plan. Okay? God's plan is that he be in control because he happens to be God. And when does God need our help? Never. Never. Okay? When does God need our advice? Almost never. <laughs> or never. Okay? Uh, maybe we should, in fact, judge our work uh, by the hardship and struggle involved. You know, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, oftentimes the process that God takes us through to bring about results is very slow, very long, and very difficult. Okay? If you are dealing with hardship, if you are struggling and enduring difficulties, if you are not seeing immediate results, even after many, many years, and it seems like it is just impossible... And you would look at your work and you say, God, this will never happen. This is so impossible, I don't think it can be done. That's a good sign that you're in the right place. Okay? If, if the Bible is any measure of this, if Abraham is any example of this, okay? if you're in a place in your life where it's struggling and it's hard and nothing is happening and, there, and, and there's no babies, but you are seeking God and you are diligently seeking to follow in his steps, then maybe you are in the right place. And we need to just daily wait and seek and trust and believe in his promises. 
Now, some people would say, well, isn't this a lot like just doing nothing and being lazy? What's the difference between waiting on God and being lazy? Well, it's true. You could be in, in the name of waiting on God, just being lazy. And the difference is this. Are you seeking God daily and hearing Him speak to you? Okay, if you're not hearing God speak and, 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 and you've got no instructions from God, then it may well be that He's speaking, but you're ignoring it because you are lazy. Okay, there's a big difference there. And that's something only you and God and the Holy Spirit can sort out in your own heart. Right? Well, um, so they, they try to do this without God's help. And this is another sign of, of a faulty plan. Okay? When it's God's plan, not only does it make babies, but it builds people up and it produces things that are glorifying to God. Okay? When it's our plan, it may make babies, but it causes conflict, strife, and division. Always. right? Because our plan in itself is inherently selfish and flawed because of our own flawed human nature. Uh, the reality is that sin has made us all highly dysfunctional. Okay? Is anybody here highly dysfunctional? Okay, A few of you. The rest of you are in denial, which is your own dysfunction, okay? Uh, sin has messed us up, right? That God is redeeming, regenerating, He's renewing. But the reality is our own human flesh, our own way of dealing with life is inherently dysfunctional, right? Um, so, uh, and in this story, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just briefly run through their dysfunction and how they deal with the issue here, um, and the reality is that their plan works, but it, but it has side effects. It's like the little pill, you know, you got, the doctor gives you this medicine for a runny nose, and you read the side effects, and it says this may cause dizziness, vomiting, throwing up, you know, drowsiness. And it's like, well, that's ten times worse than what I feel now. Why would I want the pill, right? Well, that's kind of how it is here. They, um, uh, you know, the, the side effects turn out to be way worse than the initial problem, right? And so what happens is Hagar gets pregnant, and Hagar is the, uh, I think, kind of fits the dysfunction of a victim. Okay, She's a slave, she's poor, she's victimized from the start. Okay, She has no vote in this. You know, She doesn't say, oh, oh I'd, like to, I'd like to be Abram's wife. She doesn't get an option. Okay, She doesn't get asked. She gets a, used, really. You're just a baby machine. Um, and so she kind of is in this role of a victim. And uh, she's kind of used as a baby machine, but because it works, it elevates her status. Because now instead of just being a lowly slave, nothing, she's now actually a wife of, of Abram, and she's the wife that got pregnant, right? So when you're used to being a nobody, and all of a sudden you are now important, what happens? Well, you get proud, right? And uh, she's not about to let this go by unnoticed. And so she makes very clear, you know, she's only been, she's only been pregnant for one week and she's already wearing maternity clothes, okay? Uh, she's making sure that everybody knows, right? And it says she treats uh, Sarah with contempt. Difficult word to translate, and it really doesn't necessarily have the idea of uh, mistreating her. It really has the idea of gloating. But maybe a, a good way we could do this. She's gloating, Right? So, I'm pregnant, you know. And pride has taken over, and now she has something, she is somebody, and that's how she deals with it. But what is, it, what is the result of that? 
Well, Sarai, who is a control freak, we'll get to her next, this control freak unleashes the fury of God on her. Okay, it becomes this tirade of anger and abuse, right? And so here's Hagar, the victim, finds herself victimized even more. Because now, I mean, before she was a slave, now she's an abused, oppressed slave by Sarah, who's gone crazy, who's just gone crazy, right? And in fact, it gets so bad that Hagar has to run away, and she's headed back for Egypt. Uh, so that's how she deals with the issue, the whole deal. Uh, second one, Sarai, the control freak. Right? And you see this in the beginning. We know that Sarah was controlling because of her whole, you know, taking over the reins in the first place. You know, it's like, well, God can't do this. You know, if God can't do it, I can. Right? God just needs my help. I'll take over. Don't worry, God. I got it all under control because that's, I think, Sarah's thing. And when it all goes bad... Uh, she becomes what? This tirade of anger and fury. And if she was controlling before, watch out now. And she becomes a monster. And uh, she goes off on Abram. And Abram, we'll get to him next. What does he do? Yeah, whatever, Sarah. It's your slave. Just you know, do whatever. And so she goes crazy in her control freak way. It's a good thing none of us are like this, right? Good thing none of us ever are like this. Then we come to Abraham. How does he deal with it all? Well, he's the classic avoider, right? Uh, he doesn't really have a plan, and his plan is to just avoid conflict and pretend that nothing's wrong, right? So, haven't had a baby for 10 years, pretends nothing's wrong, right? Uh, even though he and himself has clearly his own doubts. He's talked about that with God before, right? But he does not, and here's the, here's the key thing, from the very beginning, Abram is not instilling faith in his family, is he? Okay. Why is Sarah so panicked about this? Well, it's clear that Abram has not been instilling faith and confidence in God's plan within his wife. He's filled with worry and fear, and he's caused that in her as well. Um, so that's number one. He's, he's, he's not instilling fear. He is avoiding... He's being passive. His wife comes with this thing. He just obeys the voice of his wife. He's not taking leadership. He's not seeking God's counsel. He's passively just going with the flow. Now, my wife's a control freak. She gets angry if I don't say yes, so I just say yes. Right? That's what he does. And then it doesn't go well. And uh, now he finds himself caught between two angry women. And he does what all guys do between two angry women. He just avoids it and goes, reads the newspaper, right? And uh, he says, whatever, you just you take care of it. Whatever you want, dear. Uh, and that's how he handles it, right? He does not lead. He does not try to bring God's purpose into it. And I love this. You know, here's a guy who two chapters earlier was out battling 300 with, with his soldiers, the kings of the east, right? Going to war with the kings of the east. But he cannot handle his own wife, who is too much. Right? And the bottom line in all this is that uh, because of their dysfunction, because of sin, because of our way of dealing with life, instead of resting and waiting on God and his promises, they're all in their own way trying to take things into their own hands, trying to manipulate each other, manipulate circumstances, 
run away from circumstances, avoid things, right? And what happens is, when we operate this way, it is our nature to project that onto God, isn't it? Right? Uh, we tend to make God after our own image. And uh, if we tend to be an avoider and passive, we tend to see God that way. Right? We'll see God as, well, I don't know, he's just not around, because I'm not around. Right? I'm not taking charge. Why would God take charge? Um, if you're a control freak, you, know, you see that God needs help. Uh, if you're a victim, you see that God is unable to help you, and you've got to take matters in your own hand, you've got to run away. Right? So that's what happens here. They can't trust God because their God is too small. Their God is not able to fulfill his own promises. Their God's not able to work out his own plan. Right? But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. And in the last half of the chapter, it gives us a picture of the true character and nature of God. While all this human dysfunction is going on, uh, the story says that Hagar runs away into the desert and uh, probably on her way back to Egypt where she came from. And on her way, it says uh, that in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. I love that. The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is, is normally a reference to a manifestation of God's presence. It's, it's God. Okay, it's not just an angel, but it's God himself coming, appearing to her, and he finds her. Okay? Uh, what is God like? Why is it God does not need help? And who is this God that we serve? Well, first of all, he is a God who finds us, who watches over us, and who knows what's going on in our life. And here's this poor Hagar, oppressed, abused, uh, at the end of her robe, running away, God finds her. And he says to her, um, you know, he said, and I love this, his angel of the Lord appears, finds her behind, beside the spring in the wilderness, and he says to her, Hagar, he knows her name, Sarai's servant, he knows her position and he knows her boss, okay? But then he says, where did you come from and where are you going? They're kind of a strange question. He knows who she is, who she works for, her status in the home, and he wants to know where she's coming from and where she's going. Uh, throughout Genesis, God often asks questions, but he never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. He knows. All right? And at face value, it could look like he's asking, you know, where did you just come from and where are you going right now? Or often I think God, when he asks those questions, is probing much deeper. And you could ask the question this way, you know, Hagar, where have you come from? What are your roots? And where is your life headed? Okay. Now, if, if she were to answer that question at that deeper level, she was an Egyptian who lived on the wrong side of the tracks in terms of God's program for the world. Okay. Egypt was never viewed as a place of God's promise. In fact, it's always viewed as a place of bad things happening. And ultimately, of God's pouring out judgment, right? That's where she came from. She's a slave. She is poor. She is a nobody. That's where she's come from. Where is she going? Well, right now, she's wandering in an empty wilderness, kind of headed back to that same place, a life far removed from the promise and blessing of God. 
And God knows that. And He comes to her and He talks to her and He says to her, and you know, she answers back, well, I'm running away from my... She, she doesn't get the deeper question. She answers the shallow one. That's, that's us. When God asks us questions, we're always quick to answer the superficial question. Let's not go deep. Okay, let's keep it superficial. Well, I'm running away from my, my mistress. Notice what God says to her. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Okay, return to her. He says, sister, I want you to go back. And literally, it says, I want you to submit to yourself to her heavy hand. Okay, I want you to go back and I want you to submit to the oppressive treatment that she is giving you. Now, you know, this kind of ought to make us angry. Okay, this ought to like light some of, some of us up. Right? You know, what is God saying here? This just doesn't seem right. Where's the God of mercy and compassion? What do you mean, go back? And he says specifically, submit, put yourself under her heavy-handed oppression. Go back there and get yourself beat up. Well, that just doesn't sound right. What's, what's with that? What kind of a God is this? Well, uh, we could teach a whole message on that. I don't want to take the time about the questions this raises about God's character and nature. But let's just simply say this. Um, God knows that if she keeps going towards Egypt, every step she takes takes her farther and farther away from his program, his purpose, and his blessing. But in the household of Abraham, she stands firmly rooted in God's promise and his blessing. Right? Now, it, the, the, the principle is this. It is always better to be in God's promise and under his blessing and suffer than to be comfortable and have life easy apart from God's program. Right? Uh, I believe that, that she is supposed to go back and be an object lesson to Sarai. Right? Uh, the deal is this. God's program often requires hardship. Okay? And God never, God's, God, God looks down and he feels for you in your hardship, but he never says, oh my goodness, they're suffering. I've got to save them from their suffering. Okay, God doesn't do that. Okay, suffering is very much a part of what God calls us to. It's very much a part of what we are, what we, uh, are going to find in our life if we are walking in his will and in his purpose. Okay. Sometimes life is very hard. Sometimes things do not go the way we want. And sometimes we will be oppressed. Right? It's part of God's plan. And God's, God says, you need to submit. You are her slave. You are um, under her. You need to submit to her. Okay. Now, let me just say this. Um, does this mean, you know, the question is, does this mean that uh, if somebody's in an abusive relationship, they're supposed to just stay there and get beat up. Uh, not always, okay? Not always. Uh, if, if you're in an abusive marriage or you know somebody's in an abusive marriage and, a, and the husband is beating up his wife, uh, does this mean you're supposed to go back and just uh, submit to that and get beat up? No. Okay, let's look at the context here. God is not sending her back to an abusive husband. She's sending her back to a 75-year-old beauty queen. Okay, I don't think Hagar is in physical danger here. Okay, I don't think Sarah is going to beat her up. Okay, she might be obnoxious, and she might be a person whose name is a bad word, I won't say. 
but I don't think she's going to beat her up. See, some of you know what word I was thinking. Shame on you. Okay. Uh, she's not in physical danger. All right. There's a difference. Okay. We've got to be wise. But but the lesson is this: you may be in a difficult relationship. You may feel at some levels oppressed, and your physical life may not be in danger, but emotionally, you are being oppressed and beat up. Right. You're in a situation where somebody is treating you harshly, is hurting you emotionally, right? And the world will tell you, get out, run away. You don't, you're, you're better than that. You deserve better than that, right? How many marriages end because of you know, hardship and the world tells you to run away? That's not what God says. God says, submit to that oppression. Put yourself in the midst of that hardship and stand firm in it. Right? Uh, the bottom line is, having an angry control freak for a spouse is not an excuse for a divorce. Okay? So if you're going, <laughs> sad. Right? Uh, doesn't work that way. God calls us oftentimes to suffer hardship. All right, and uh, we need to hang in there. You may be in in an organization, or you may have a boss or an employer, or be in a situation where they are oppressing you. Okay, and sadly, I've seen in many Christian organizations where the organization itself is quite oppressive, quite hard, and really don't care for people. And you know, the problem is these ministries can turn into large machines that chew people up and spit them out. And you may be one of those people who's caught in the cogs of this machine that's being spit up, chewed up and spit out. And your, your instinct is to run away. And uh, you know, God may lead you in other ways. But he may lead you and call you to stand and endure hardship. All right? uh, you can go on down the list. Circumstances, strained relationships. Uh, God calls us to stand and endure and to be firm trusting Him. Um, God makes it also very clear that He is in control. So he, he calls Hagar to hardship. He makes it clear that He's in control. Bottom line, He says, well, bottom line, she's pregnant and Sarah's not. That's a mark of God's control. Secondly, He he explains to, Sarah, uh, to Hagar that her descendants will become great. He says, you're going to have a son. He gives him a name, Ishmael. Um, is this child, here's a good theological question, is this child an illegitimate child? Right? Uh, how is it that it works this way? That, you know, people who shouldn't be having sex can have sex once and she can get pregnant. Right? How does it happen that way? People who want kids can, you know, can try for years, never have a child. The bottom line is God is in control. And the reality is, God says to Hagar, this is not an illegitimate child. This child is part of my plan because I'm a sovereign God who's in control. I'm in control. Okay, and I am accomplishing my plan. And I have a plan for Abraham and for Sarai. But I have a plan for you as well. And I'm in control and I'm working out my plan. And you can trust and have confidence in my plan. And your son's going to be a wild man and, and uh, 
Nobody's going to mess with him. Okay, you may be a victim, but he won't. Okay, he's going to put his fist up, and nobody's going to mess with him. Right? And someday, you know, you'll get your your dues back on Sarah. Don't worry, because uh, he's not going to have anybody messing around with him. But God's in control, and she can trust that. Uh, lastly. Uh, Last point, God takes care of us. Uh, It's interesting, God names Ishmael, which means God hears. God finds Hagar in the wilderness. He's a God who finds the lost. Finally, um, Hagar herself gives God a name. She's the only character in the Old Testament to name God. Pretty interesting. And she calls him Elroy. (laughs) Okay? Who knew? Elroy. Which, just so you know, the actual correct Hebrew pronunciation of that would be El Roi. Okay, El Roi, not Elroy. But nonetheless, same word. And it means what? It means God sees me. I have met and stood in the presence of the God who sees me. And in fact, the, the well then bears the name. The, the well is the living one who sees and looks after us. Okay. Um, it's true that God sends Hagar back into amidst the very difficult circumstances, but the cool thing is, in the midst of her hardship, God meets her. God meets her and he speaks to her and he uh, blesses her and he makes promises and he assures her that he is watching out for her. Now, it's important to understand who she is. She is not, by many accounts, a legitimate wife. She's certainly not an equal wife to Sarah, even in those days. She is still a slave. Uh, she is an Egyptian. She's a nobody. Okay, by world standards, she is a nobody. But does that matter to God? It doesn't matter to God, because to God, everybody is somebody significant and important. I don't know where you are today, and uh, chances are uh, many of you are in the midst of hardship, are in the midst of difficulties. Um, Maybe you are waiting for God's promise and His blessing, and it's hard. And you feel like you've been waiting forever, and there are no babies, uh, there's no results, things have not gone as you thought. Maybe you're in a marriage or a relationship where it's not worked out the way you thought. You're in an organization that doesn't, is not what you thought. Right? Uh, be encouraged that God knows and he sees. Right? And the solution is not to attack the problem with our dysfunctionalness. Well, that's a word, but with our craziness. right? Uh, to, to resort to our instinct. What we need is what Hagar had. What we need is to hear God speak to us, don't we? We need to come face-to-face in contact with the God who sees us, and we need the assurance that he's watching over us. And, you know, God wants to do that. He wants to meet us and encourage us. So let's just take a minute and bow right now and just take a, a moment in silence. And just as Priscilla shared earlier, the great question is, what does God want to say to you? in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your hardship. 
What does God want to stir in your heart? This God who finds us, who sees us, who knows our every struggle, and who loves us. Father, if we are honest, we would have to confess that we spend far too little time listening to you. But how ironic it is that Abraham was so quick to listen to the voice of his wife. How, how quick we are to listen to the voices around us. But how little do we listen to your voice. How little time do we spend seeking your way about doing things, seeking your will and your direction? Lord, how how little of our day is really spent waiting upon you to direct us, to move us. And instead, we we feel the pressure to, to come up with results, to get things done, and we know what your purpose is, and so we rush ahead with our own plans, devising our own schemes, taking control, running over people and manipulating people and circumstances to our own ends. And then to top it all off, we pray for your blessing on our craziness. And Lord, that's not what you called us to do or That's not the life you've invited us to. You've invited us to a life where you do the great and powerful works. Where you do the miraculous. Because that's what brings glory to your name. Father, you are not glorified by the great things we do. You are glorified by doing great things in the midst of our weakness. So Lord, we pray that you would help us Uh, do that, to see your hand and your power accomplishing your work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.